0: I'm not always a good person. I don't seem to have any special skills. I didn't graduate at the top of my class. I haven't traveled the world or made a fortune. Honestly, I've done some bad things in my past. And you know what? That's okay. because God isn't impressed by my resume. My accomplishments and my accolades don't mean anything to him. God uses me in all my imperfection for his glory.
1: Amen. We are finishing up our sermon series entitled, Could it be that God could use me with a message that I've entitled, What do you do when you don't know what to do? How often have you felt like that? That in life there were seasons... And circumstances that you came up against that you just didn't know what to do. And you find yourself asking the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? It is a lot of times followed by a feeling of fear. I want to bring a friend of mine up on stage with me today, Pastor Steve Womberg. He is a part of our 8 a.m. celebration service and, uh, and our pastoral team here. And he's going to help me with the message today. But one of the things that we talk about is what happens when we are faced with fears. The body has a natural response. It will generally do one of three things. The first thing that will happen as a body encounters something that is considered a threat is their body will be filled with, with endorphins and with chemicals that will help them react. And they're going to react one of three ways. So they'll see a, a, a threat. And as they see the threat... Uh, after, after laughing, they were, <laughs> as they see the threat, the first thing that they'll do is they'll assess the situation and determine if they feel like what they have can overcome the, the imminent danger in front of them. And if they determine that they in fact can overcome the threat, their body will naturally lead them to fight. On the other hand, They come into a circumstance or a season that is threatening and they see a circumstance that is dangerous and they're not confident that they can defend themselves or even win. Instead of fighting, they will do what we call flight. They will run away as fast as they can and hope that they're faster than the circumstance. But there's a third and often missed one and we're going to talk about that today. It's when you come into a situation where there's an imminent threat in front of you and you don't have enough information, you don't know if you can overcome your foe or if the foe is going to beat you, so you don't know if you should fight or if you should run away. What happens in these moments when you don't know what to do is you freeze. You don't fight, you don't flight, but you freeze. And that's where we ask and answer this question. What do you do when you don't know what to do? And what I find in faith is all too often on the heels of our It Takes a Village series where we learned about this collective of Christians called a community and that we all have a part to play in this collective that people will often freeze. They're either afraid or uncertain. They don't know what to do with it. There's just not enough information. Whatever the reason is, they, they, they freeze in that moment and they don't know what to do moving forward. And so the question that we have to ask and answer is, what do you do then when you don't know what to do? Because in order for us to be used by God, we've got to first recognize that God wants to use us and he has a plan for us. So Steve and I are going to talk us through that today, hopefully in the time that we have left. Let me encourage you up front to grab your Bible and to turn to the book of Judges. And we're going to be in chapters, yes, plural, chapters six and seven today. And if you don't have a Bible, I would love to invite you to simply raise your hand and allow one of my friends to bring you a Bible. And this Bible that they're going to give you is a gift. It's yours to keep. So just raise your hand if you need or you would like a Bible and turn to Judges chapter 6. If you're unfamiliar with Judges, it is in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. You can find it either in the table of contents or if you start at the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and work your way to the right, you'll run past Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then some names, Joshua, and then into Judges, as we jump in today, I want to set a little bit of cultural context and let you know that Judges is a collection of stories and, and, and relationship between God and the Israelites over 326 years. Uh, this is written around 1050 BC, and it is on the heels of a culture, a community that says, "We no longer want Yahweh God to be our king and ruler of our community." We see secular monarchism, and we want to have a king for ourselves. Give us a king. And there's this battle that takes place between God and the Israelites, where the Israelites are being disobedient, and God's calling them back unto himself, but they're insistent that they want a king to call their own. During this season of life, there are a series of 13 judges that God will award or appoint to the people of Israel. These judges then are prophets that will act as spokesmen and women as ambassadors for God on behalf of God. They will come down and into the situation and they will speak into the circumstances. And so you have some of the greatest biblical stories that we learn about Samson is actually the last judge. And you've got Deborah. And then today we're actually going to study about the judge, the prophet Gideon. So let's jump in today, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for community. I thank you for this morning that we have already been able to celebrate these beautiful babies that have been dedicated to your service and for these families that have committed themselves to Christ. I pray as we jump into worship now through the public reading of scripture and through intentionally unpacking what you have for us, Mm -hmm. that we would get out of the way so that you would be elevated, God, that what we do would be for your glorification and for the edification of the body. I pray that you would enlighten us, that you would open up our hearts and minds, and that as your word goes out, that you will draw us unto yourself. Father, I pray that over these moments we have together that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be a pleasing gift to you. Redeem it for your glory, Jesus. And as we encounter you, I pray that our lives would never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. What Steve and I are going to do is we are going to read and work through this passage of scripture together, and then we're going to spend some time unpacking it as we go. A little bit different, a lot of fun. So let's jump in today. Gideon is introduced in Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. And it says this. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Stop. This is known. Steve, would you grab that sight for me? Sure. Thank you, Vanna.
0: <laughs> Wait a minute. Oh my, man, you're,
1: you're a little strong there, fella. Calm down, dude. <laughs> you, you got me in. Yeah. It says the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. For 326 years, we're going to learn about the cycle of sin between the Israelites and God. For 40 years before what we're going to read, the Israelites were living in a period of peace. Historically, there were no wars. They were at peace within the community and within the surrounding area. But what often happens when we experience peace is we actually misrepresent peace and we replace it with apathy. We become apathetic to our relationship with God. And we allow the things of the world to influence us. What that leads to is idolatry. Idolatry is a sin of removing God and replacing him with something or someone. In this case, it's idol worship. The Israelites had given themselves over to cultural worship. They had begun to identify with the practices of the people of the land. They were cohabitating in the promised land because they hadn't fulfilled God's promise Not because God was short on his promise, but because they weren't entirely obedient. So they're cohabitating with several other people groups. And they're adopting their ways in place of a right relationship with God. In this sin and brokenness, it leads to a period of crying out to God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you at? Why are you allowing these things to happen to me? And we'll often superimpose our poor choices on the absence of God as though he left us. But the reality is that God never leaves. He is the beginning and the end. He never changes. He doesn't move from us and so in these seasons where we commit idolatry through worshiping things of this world and we are feeling broken and crying out God where have you gone? God has has gone nowhere. He is waiting to to have us return into him. And what we see in this is there's actually going to be seven wars that this cycle takes place where they go from idolatry to brokenness to crying out God help us. this is reminiscent of Exodus 3 when God says, I've heard their cry, Moses, and I'm going to deliver my people. And so he sent Moses as a representative into Egypt to take out the Israelites. But here, he's going to use these 13 different prophets. And in the one we're studying today, Gideon, will be God's chosen and anointed judge over the people, acting as a spokesperson and mediating between God and people. And after they go through a period of brokenness and receiving a prophet or a judge... This judge will then give the word of God, which will lead to clear instructions, which will always lead us back to repentance and repentance to reconciliation. And when we accept repentance, when we express repentance and accept reconciliation, we will walk into a period of peace and restoration. How many of you can identify with something like this in your own life? The Israelites, for 326 years... Over seven different wars will be waged where they will go away from God's peace into their own ways and they will go to war over their sin. It says here in Judges chapter six, beginning in verse one, the Israelites who had had 40 years of peace did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They've stepped out into adultery. So the Lord handed them over, these are the ramifications for their choices, to the Midianites for seven years. This is a seven year war. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in mountains and in caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian and Amalek and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts, and they arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count. Steve, what's going on here? Huh.
0: Well, a few things. One, you'll notice that because they're destroying crops, that takes away their food supply. Right. And you'll notice that with the raiding of the livestock, does the same thing. What they're doing is making it very difficult, if not impossible, for Israel to raise up any, any kind of defense that would, that would be able to withstand a siege. right? So um, the camels themselves, uh, the Midianites, most historians believe, were the first group of people to use camels in a strategic military way. Yeah. So piece of trivia you can impress your friends with later. right? But understand that, that new things were seen But at the same time, highly destructive things were going on. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was also a show of force. Camels represented two things. It represented opulence and it represented power. So when we read here that the Midianites came and that they were enemy hordes coming with livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived in droves of camels, too numerous to count. Opulence and power. You get the sense that the, the, the backdrop, of the, the, the framework within which we're going to read today is the people from Israel are scared out of their minds at the power of the people. And it says, as they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. They went from peace with God in the land to being on the run. Then the Israelites cried out for help to God. You see this? Peace. Idolatry and crying out in brokenness. Now watch how God shows up in the midst of this cry. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. This is Gideon. And he said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Remember, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. And I drove out your enemies and I gave you their land. And I told you, I am the Lord, your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But you have not listened. I gave you the Torah. I gave you the law. I gave you the the, the specific instructions on how to maintain peace and yet you have set aside what was so clearly written in place of your own preferences. Your own priorities. How many of us have exchanged the peace of God for our own personal preferences? Then it says here in verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Ebuzer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Do you do you sense any irony in,
0: in this backdrop? Well, it's huge. <clears throat> it's huge because Gideon... Uh, very. The very fact that Israel was forced into a situation where they were hiding, number one, but then also the, uh, the extremity is, is shown very clearly because they're getting, trying to get the chaff out of their wheat in a wine press. Right. You know, and, and even someone as young as Andrew can remember I Love Lucy. That's right. Yep. And what went on in the wine press there, Andrew? That's right. Hey, you hey know, Lucy, I'm home. That's right. You know, there's room for five to eight people in a normal wine press. And what do they do? They come together, they lock hands, and they will stomp all over the grapes
1: and will begin the fermentation process.
0: Exactly. But, but the difference is that a threshing floor, in most, in most cases, could handle many households at once. It could handle entire small villages of people throwing their wheat up in the air, perhaps, and having the wind blow the chaff away. Right. Or treading out the grain with cattle, whatever yeah. they chose to do. Yeah. But it was bigger, it was uphill. Yeah. Wine presses tended to be downhill. Right. And have you ever used the wrong tool for a given situation? Yes. Wine presses are not prime territory. For taking care of wheat, for blowing, getting the chaff blown away, yeah. you're you're throwing you're throwing the wheat up into a place where there's no moving air, right? Yeah. What do they
1: say? Doing the same thing over, affecting different results. It seems insane to insane. me yeah. that Gideon is there. Not only is he not up on the mountainside with the threshing floor where they could throw this wheat up into the air, allowing the strong wind to carry the chaff away and leaving the grain, but he is hiding out in a dug-out cistern that is dubbed a, a, a well uh, for wine, a wine press. He's hiding. He's literally doing this in the dark. He's got his, his winnowing fork and he's throwing it up and he's hoping that in some some case he can make some sense of... Food for themselves. He's doing this so that he will not be found out. So now, you get the sense that he's afraid. He's afraid of people finding out about him. He's afraid that they're going to come and take more of their food. He's afraid they'll take their lives. And here is what happens. The angel of the Lord came and he sat beneath the tree. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and he said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Oh, it gets better. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are the miracles our ancestors told us about? You see, I've heard your stories and I've seen you work in the lives of others, but I haven't experienced it, he says. Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But that hasn't been my experience. But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. What he's doing is he's playing the victim where the people have stepped out of community with God. He's pointing the finger at everybody else for all the things that are going on with him. But then check this out, verse 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go with strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? Because my clan is the weakest of the whole tribe of Manasseh and I am the least of my entire family. Two things are happening here. The first is we see that God is at work in us
0: before we begin. Amen. There's an identity shift, right? Huge. Huge. Never take it lightly when when someone is called any given title or the name changes, for instance, from Jacob to Israel, right? From Saul to Paul. That 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 should be a flag in the scriptures to say, take a look, take a look and watch this. Gideon being called mighty hero is a sad irony, probably to Gideon. It's like, you know, I'm hearing this, and it's either God or I really had bad anchovies for lunch. Right. Uh, the, the, the point going forward is that God is about the business, as, as you said, because he's at work before right. we begin. I'm saying, Gideon, time for an identity change. Gideon, Gideon, mighty hero. Right. Get used to that. Right. Because not only is your name going to change, your circumstances are about to change, and you're about to change. Here's the point. If you're not liking change... You know, be careful what you ask of God. Okay. Right. No, that's good. Midian is,
1: is pressing in. Gideon is in the bottom of this wine press. God looks into his life and he speaks to him and he identifies him, not by anything that he's done, but who he says he is. And he says, You are a mighty hero. And Gideon Gideon doesn't even realize it, but God is at work in him before Gideon begins. This is theologically called prevenient grace. This is God at work in us before we recognize it or respond to it. God at work in us called prevenient grace is before we recognize it or respond to it. And so Gideon is just surrounded by his circumstances. And as, as God speaks to him, he feels that this is preposterous. How could you call me a mighty hero? Look at me. I'm hiding out here in a wine press because I'm afraid of my life. I'm afraid of of getting this food that I'm just trying to make some sense of getting stolen from me. How can you call me a mighty hero? In fact, I'm from the tribe of Manasseh, which is the least of all Israel, and I'm the weakest link in the tribe. There's no way. But then listen to what God says. Gideon, go with what you've got. You see that? Check this out. Verse 14. 14. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Where Gideon wants to superimpose on God all the reasons he's not qualified, God says go with what you've got. Go with your brokenness. Go with your baggage. Go with your background. Go with what you've got. I am sending you. I am going before you. You've already won the victory. But how many of us, how many of us are so overwhelmed by our circumstances that we superimpose on God, why He could never use us. When all the while God is saying, I've got a plan and a purpose for you. He plans yeah. to prosper you, not to harm you. Plan to give you a yeah. hope and a future. I'm going to use you. God is at work in you before you begin. And God is charging you to go with what you've got. You don't have to come to church. And have to go through the steps one, two, and three, and the next steps four and five, and have it all figured out, and have an appropriate platform from with which you can be obedient to what God's called you to.
0: You go with what you've got. Well, that's it. And if, if we apply that very practically, at what point is enough enough? Right. When would you ever start if you waited for circumstances to fall into place in a way you thought was right? Rather than launching out in obedience to what God has already told you should happen. Yeah, and that, that's a tough one for those of us who live in relative comfort in the American church. Right, Come We're on. used to having things set up. Yep. We're used to having things ready to rock. And here's Gideon, huh, caught in a wine press, threshing wheat, in hiding... Yeah. And God's saying, go with what you got. And Gideon looks around and he says, yeah.
1: Right. Right.
0: What's that? Yeah. And how many, we're about to find and out. And how many of us feel like that if we're
1: being completely yeah. honest? We do an inventory of our lives, of our history, of the tools and resources we have available to us. And we ask the question God, you, could you really use me? You want me to, to, to go with what I've got? Well, check out what. Check out what transpires as Gideon steps into what God has for him. Verse 16 says, the Lord said to him, I'm going to be with you. And you're going to go destroy the Midianites as if they were fighting against one man. And Gideon replied, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. Now I want you to hold on to this. Gideon presses back into God and he says, show me something. And God answers, I'm going to stay here until you return. So Gideon hurried home and he cooked the young goat with a basket of flour. He baked some bread without yeast. Then, carrying the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. And the angel of God said to him, Place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat. And bread with the tip of the staff in his hand. And fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all that he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared.
0: Does that sound familiar? <clears throat> it should. You know, think about it. I mean, it should. You know, you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18? He sets out, he sets out the meal. He sets out the sacrifice. Uh, and in contrast, again, to the prophets of Baal, again... Yeah. You know? God tortures the sacrifice, consumes it totally, consumes water that was poured over the sacrifice, ten yeah. big jars worth. Insurmountable odds. And yet God delivers. Right. And yeah. and, and the prophet, the obedient guy, is 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 proven. something to think about. Well, we
1: have to ask and answer this question. Yeah. We predicated this whole message today on the concept and the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Gideon clearly didn't know what to do here. No, but he did do the next right thing. Check that out. In verse 20, in verse 20, it says, the angel of the Lord said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told.
0: Even though it didn't make sense. Even though, even, even though it was off the wall. Have, well, have any of you ever, have, have you ever done anything, Andrew, in obedience to God that seemed like it was a little bit off the wall? Just a little. Checking. Just, just a, a little. checking. Just a little. It begs
1: the question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And Gideon demonstrates the answer. Even if you don't have the whole picture in front of you, even if you don't know the totality of the outcome, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You do the next right thing. Yep. You step into the next moment that God is calling you into. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what do you do when you don't know what to do? What's the next right thing that God is calling you to? Now check this out, verse 22. When Gideon realized that he, that it was an angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's scared. This is again an example of what a coward Gideon is. And God says, it's all right. The Lord replied, do not be afraid. You won't die. And Gideon built an altar there and he named it Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. And the altar remains there to this day. That night the Lord said to Gideon, listen, I want you to take the second bowl from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. And I want you to pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. That night the Lord said to Gideon, verse 25, take the second bowl from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, and pull down your father's altar to Baal, the Asherah pole, which represents the God of storms and the God of fertility. Gideon is not only dealing with why he is the weakest and the least of these, he is clearly dealing with generational sin.
0: Exactly. And don't miss the importance of what they've said that it's his father's altar. It's his father's Asherah pole. Joash, uh, most likely was in charge of guarding and protecting that very altar, that very Asherah pole. It seems that the villagers had a vested interest in it. Yeah. Yeah. So it says that night, uh,
1: he built the altar, it says verse t- uh, 27. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded him. What do you do when you don't know what to do? The next right thing. But he did it at night because he was what? Afraid. Did anybody relate to this? <laughs> he did it at night because he was afraid. He was afraid of what? Well, he did it at night because he was afraid of the people. How many of us have yet to be obedient to God because we're afraid of the praise of people? We're afraid of the applause of people. We're afraid of the, the opinions of people. Just, it's just me. <laughs> I must be the only one who has never been obedient to God. There have been seasons in my life where I have flat out disobeyed God and his clear call on my life because I was more afraid of what you would think than what God was commanding me to do. Because I'm afraid. Gideon was afraid so he went at night Earlier the next morning, as the people in town began to stir, someone discovered that the altar to Baal had been broken down and that the Asherah pole beside it had been cut down. And in their place, a new altar had been built. And on it were the remains of the bull that had been sacrificed. The people said to each other, who did this? And after asking around and making a careful search, they learned that it was Gideon, the son of Joash. Bring out your son, the men of the town demanded of Joash. He must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down our Asherah pole. How many of you know that when we, pull, when we tear down idols in people's lives, oh, I'm about to
0: preach. Do it. <laughs> Chili's in crock pots, you're Okay. When we mess with
1: people's traditions, when we mess with people's preferences, when we mess with people's possessions, where they become proprietary in something, they become enraged. And they come looking for the person who's caused the problem with a pitchfork and a torch in hand. And the thing that grieves my heart the most is that this can happen in church. That we could move a religious symbol, like, like a symbol, like a cross, from the back of the stage, restore it to its original beautiful wooden state, and place it in a permanent place so that we could make a multi purpose stage and backdrop, and to have people literally want me to leave Blair because I moved a wooden cross. I mean, hypothetically speaking.
0: (laughs) I I can't imagine.
1: People get peeved. There's children here. I'm using a filter. People (laughs) get peeved when you mess with their idols.
0: It's real.
1: Because it's what we've identified with. And I just wonder, what idol in your life Do you need God to come in, cut down and burn up? And then stop looking for a scapegoat and a reason to be mad. Don't come to church looking for a reason to be mad. I'll give you plenty. (laughs) Then it should begin and end with our hearts. Do we have obedient hearts to God that say we come together as a collective community to worship God, to edify his name, or to, to, to exalt his name, edify the body, Or are we more concerned about the decor and religious symbols? That's what's going on here. The people were furious. Listen to Joash, Gideon's dad. But Joash shouted to the mob that confronted him. I love this. uh, Well, let's get into it. Now I'll explain it. Why are you defending Baal? Why are you defending your God, your little G God, your deity? Will you argue his case? Come on. Whoever pleads this case will be put to death by morning. But if Baal truly is a God, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerob Baal, which means let Baal defend himself. The idols that you've built in your life are weak. They do not have the ability to save your life or to spare your life. If they are left to defend themselves, they will fail every time. These imitations of the world and these altars that we erect Money will fail you every time. Relationships will fail you. You see, wherever you try to exchange what God means for peace and restoration with your own personal preferences is a form of idolatry, and any idol in your life will always fail you. And I love what Joash says. Hey, why are you defending your God? Your God's a big God. Let him do his thing. You see... Like, I just love how subtle this smack in the face is. This isn't like a, oh, psh, this is a, <laughs> I just wanted to hit you.
0: I know, it's okay. <laughs> uh, do you have anything to add to that, Steve? Wait, don't miss, don't miss the, uh, the event of the name change. Right. As we go That's forward, the whole, the whole idea. Um, take a look. Gideon goes from Gideon. Scared running, a, running a, a, a rebel wine press as a threshing floor <laughs> uh, to mighty hero. And he takes on that title, mighty hero, and he gets it, right? And, and he exercises. He begins to operate in that identity. How? Yeah. Obedience. Right. The next right thing. Yeah. That's good. And then the next right thing actually helps him fulfill this title of mighty hero and it gets really specific from that point forward because then he becomes, watch out, Jerubbaal, the destroyer of Baal. Right. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Kind of makes you think of, of Conan the destroyer, doesn't it? Yeah. Gideon the destroyer.
1: This is another example of, uh, of no longer self-describing and beginning to have, I, I find your That's identity right. in what God says about you. Huge. Quit superimposing your self-description on God and begin to adopt what God says about you. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made, created with his plan and his purpose in mind. That you are a co-heir with Christ, the daughter of the king. So soon afterward, the armies of Midian and Amalek and the people of the east formed an alliance. They had a coalition. This is no longer just one army, it's three. Against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord took possession of Gideon. What this is, is when we surrender our lives fully to the power of God and come under the authority of God, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit then we are gifting or giving authority to the Spirit to lead our lives the Holy Spirit comes over Gideon and he blew a ram's horn as a call to arms and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. And he also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors and all of them responded. Then Gideon said to God, hey, listen, God, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me this way. I'm gonna put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight and if the fleece is wet with dew in the morning but the ground is dry, then then I'm gonna know that you're gonna help me Rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowl full of water. But then Gideon said to God a third time, please don't be angry with me, God, but let me make one more request. Let me use the fleece from, for the one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. So that night God did as Gideon asked and the fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. And the Lord's anger Raged against Gideon for his faulty faith. Except that's not what scripture says. Nowhere will you learn here that God gets angry with anybody for ever asking God to show up in their lives. We have this idea, theologically, the Bible says, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test. And somehow, ask, us asking God to show up, us confessing that we have doubts in our faith, we think that's putting the test of, of God, that we're, we're, we're putting our, test to, uh, our faith to test. That's not what theologically it's addressing. When it says, you shall not put your Lord, your God to the test, it's talking about idolatry. It's talking about testing God against, the, 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 the replacing God with the things of this world. I mean, think about some of the greatest heroes we celebrate in the faith. Think about one of Jesus' closest disciples and friends, followers, was a man named Thomas. And Thomas, Didymus the twin, he came and he heard from everybody else that Jesus had been resurrected. But you know what he said? That's not been my experience. That's your experience. And I won't believe it unless Jesus shows up to me, unless I can see where his nails were pierced through his wrists or I can touch his side. And you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say that Jesus showed up and shunned Thomas. It doesn't say that he cast him out. What it says was he showed up and he, arms wide open, said, Thomas, come to me. Look, here's where I was pierced for your transgressions. Here, touch my side. And Thomas believed. Oh, what about the apostle Paul? Paul who said, Lord, I believe, yet in my unbelief, help me. God doesn't expect that we have it always figured out. God does expect that we'll be authentic in our doubt. God doesn't expect that we will always have it figured out. God does expect that we'll be authentic in our doubt. In those moments where you're afraid, quite simply, the greatest prayer you could pray is God, show up. I need you to show up in my life right now. Right now. Quit beating yourself up if you've ever doubted God. You lose a loved one. Your marriage falls apart even though you've done everything you've tried to do to make it work. You've gone into bankruptcy. You physically are at your wit's end. You've gone to every doctor and you've been prescribed every medicine. And right now you're just questioning everything. God is bigger than our faulty faith. Amen? Yes. Amen. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. His new identity, so Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Harod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. And if I let you all fight the Midianites, these Israelites will boast to me that they saved them by their own strength. Anybody ever do that? Beg God to rescue them and then when something goes well, they take full credit for themselves? No? the Lord said you got too many, too many guys and if I let you do this you're going to take credit therefore verse 3 tell the people whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home so 22,000 of the men went leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight you talk about having your hopes deflated and this was customary for battle this was actually really something that would take place on a regular basis the commander of the army or the legion would go out and he would ask any of them who were afraid for that battle coming up to step out. Why? Because as long as you're operating under fear, you're a liability. And so they would let you step away. He didn't belittle them. He didn't cast them out. He just said, as long as you're operating under fear, you're a liability. And that day, 22,000 men walked away, leaving Gideon with 10,000. And Gideon is, he's doing a, a census of his army. And he's looking around, and he's counting heads, he's like, okay, uh, i okay, okay. Yeah. All right, 10,000, that's not bad. We still stand a chance against multiple armies, hundreds of thousands of men. But then check out what God does. And the
0: story goes on.
1: It does. Verse 4, but the Lord told Gideon, there's still too many. You ever have a moment where God... Make something really clear to you, but it doesn't seem clear to you? You know what I mean? Like where God made it clear to you, but it doesn't seem clear to to you. At least not the way you see things or the way you would script it. This isn't the way that Gideon would have scripted it, so it didn't seem clear to him. He says, bring them down to the spring, and I'm going to test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And in the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. And the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. Steve, there is something significant at play here with the way
0: these men drink water. What's going on? Okay, what's going on? Uh, basically, big category, alertness. Yeah. What, what happens with the, the gentlemen, the warriors who can, who can kneel down and pick up water in their hands and lap like dogs from their hands, is that they've still got a hold of their weapon.
1: That's right.
0: They can still look around. If they lap the water straight out of the stream, they're on their stomachs, an easy target. They no longer have applicable strength behind any weapon they would carry. Right. And, you know, they relieve their thirst, but they might get killed in the process. But notice as well that it isn't an issue, again, of, of, of God looking at the ones who get down on their stomachs and, and drink that way. He just says, you know, your muscle memory isn't right. That's right. But muscle memory is important as we go forth in discipleship.
1: That's right. Absolutely.
0: The habits we develop will make a difference. That's good. On how useful we are to the kingdom. Yep, that's good. That's good. Verse 8
1: So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, get up. Go down to the Midianite camp for I have given you victory over them. But if you're still afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. And so Gideon heard from the Lord and he drew his sword from his scabbard, and he ran down and he charged the enemy lines and he went through them like butter, every single one of them defeating the Midianites and the Amalekites and everybody else who got in their way. Except it doesn't say that either. Gideon had a choice. He said, if you're still afraid, the option that I'm giving you is to go down and I'm gonna give you another sign. What does it tell us about Gideon, the fact that he still went down? How many times does God seemingly have to show up to prove himself to Gideon? Time and time and time and time and time again. And you know who gets exhausted with that? Not God, us. Do you know why we get exhausted with that? Because we are really intolerant of other people. But you know what the Bible says about God? That his mercies are new every morning. And that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he removes our transgressions from us. And that God... He, he answers us in our cries. So what did Gideon do? In, it says, so Gideon went down to the edge with Purah of the camp. And the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like swarm of locusts. Their camels, again, opulence and power, were like grains of sand on the seashore. Too many to count. So what did Gideon do? Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. Remember that God calls Gideon a mighty warrior. Listen, I cannot think of a more warrior sport than wrestling, primarily because I wrestled. And I want warrior. to, I just want yeah. to identify that way. Yeah. Beautiful thing. Yeah. 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 I never went to the wrestling match or the wrestling mat and tiptoed to my opponent. I never went out there as the referee was standing there and my opponent was across from me and and then shook hands. That's not how I did it. I made a spectacle. I was like, I got bigger than the bear. I would do stupid things. I would slap myself all over the place. I would, ah, like a, I'd get out there, I'd go in the middle of the mat, and I'm ready to go like this and shake hands. I'd I, I wouldn't even, I'd just kind of slap, and I was ready to go. I didn't know if I was going to beat that guy in my head. I thought I was going to, but I wanted him to think that I was going to kill him. him. <laughs> is down there with all these other armies and Gideon, who's this mighty hero, this mighty warrior, doesn't slap his chest, doesn't rattle his legs, doesn't even slap his face. He tiptoes because he's afraid. Sometimes following the will of God isn't isn't starting with the massive step. It might just begin with a tiptoe. But the point is, that we're being obedient to what God's called us to. And here's what happens. I want to apologize for that horrible display of whatever that was.
0: (laughs) It only scared me for a minute.
1: (laughs) The children are scared too. And I just pulled something. Oh. (laughs) Uh, Well then. I got to stretch before I preach from now on. (laughs) Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream he'd had. You see, God speaks through dreams, not mm. spoke through dreams. God still speaks through dreams today. Mm-hmm. And the man said, in my dream, I had this dream, and it was a dream about a loaf of barley bread that came tumbling down in the midnight camp. And if it hit a tent, and it turned it over and knocked it on flat. The thing about the barley loaf that's hilarious is barley was the, was the bread of the peasants and the have-nots. It was easy. It was cheap. His champion or his companion answered, your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, Israel, victory over Midian and all the allies. And when Gideon heard this dream and its interpretation, he took the army by surprise and killed them all. It doesn't say that. It says that when he realized who God was and that he was a God of his promises, that he bowed down in worship. You see, our natural response when we encounter the living God is one of adoration and praise through worship. If we're not willing to worship, it might be a matter of whether we really know the one that's worthy of our worship. He bowed down and he worshiped. What happens then is Gideon goes back to his 300 men. He collects the armies and he says, guys, God has already given us victory. The battle has already been won. And you see, that's the problem is most of us, we're so caught up in the, vi- in the battle that we don't realize the victory. We can't see how the story ends because we're so consumed with the, with the minutiae in the middle. But what the word of God tells us is that the victory has already won. The battle has already been won because of what Jesus did for us. And so we can step out in absolute confidence knowing with absolute certainty how it's going to end. And Gideon runs down and he says, guys... Come on, here's what we're going to do. We're going to divide up into three groups of 100. We're going to take our jars. We're going to take our torches. We're going to break the jars. You're going to say, a sword for God and a sword for Gideon. But here's what I need you to do. As we do this, I need you to keep your eyes on me. Watch what I do and follow me. You see, that's what happens. Is so often we're afraid to step into leadership and we're afraid to help out anywhere because we know that if we do, people are going to be watching us. And we're either afraid of failing or we're afraid of being found out. And the only way that I know how to combat being found out is to confess your sins first to God and then to find an accountability partner. This isn't unique. None of us should be afraid to have others follow us, but we should have the attitude of Paul. What did Paul say?
0: Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That is, follow, follow, uh, follow me as I follow Jesus.
1: That's right. That's exactly right.
0: But all too often, we're
1: so afraid... Of people following us because we're not following the one that we should be following. So the army gets together. And they've obviously seen enough from Gideon and from God now that they are willing to go to war with hundreds of thousands of men, just the 300 of them. They surround the enemy camps. They smash their jars with their torches in hand. They scream aloud, a sword for God and a sword for Gideon. And God causes confusion amongst all those in the army. They go to war fighting against each other. They run off scared. And eventually the two commanders of this massive army are going to be brought back and have to answer for their violence toward the Israelites. What do you do when you don't know what to do, Steve?
0: You do the next right thing. You know, and what's our success? What's success tied up in throughout the, throughout this passage? We often look at metrics in our
1: lives as a evaluation of success. Our bank accounts, our retirement, our homes, what we drive how we dress, who we're married to, what our kids do. Even in church, churches can get hung up on looking at numbers as a metric for success. And I would be remiss if I didn't share with you that as a church, we find high value in celebrating the wins, in celebrating the numbers because every number has a name, every name has a story and every story matters to God. So we do, we celebrate numbers here at Country Bible Church as of this morning because two more people gave their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior in our last service 273 people have surrendered their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives yeah Amen. you know why that never gets old and why that doesn't scare me is because every time Jesus shows up on the scene and changes somebody's life he says now go and show yourself go and show We use other metrics, like we've given out over 870 Bibles. We've seen nearly 100 people baptized. We've dedicated dozens of children. There's a lot of different metrics that we use. But people will come to us, and they'll hear about what God is doing at Country Bible Church, and they'll ask, what's your secret sauce? What's the the blueprint? What's the map for how you've done all of this? And while we can point to these metrics, the answer is simple. Obedience. We haven't always known what to do. So when you don't know what to do, you just do the next right thing. And sometimes that next right thing looks like a massive step. And other times it looks like tiptoeing. But you're always moving forward into what God wants you to do through simple obedience. And is it scary? Yes. It's, it's frightful. It's It's overwhelming. It can be paralyzing if you allow it to be. I've operated much of my life in fear. My greatest fear? What you think of me. This isn't just to preach real good right now. This is the truth. I fear what you feel about me. One of the hardest things that I've had to deal with in the last decade of my life was moving from a metropolitan area in Minneapolis because I knew God was leading us but I didn't know how or where and stepping into life in context and community of Blair Nebraska. Coming in on the heels of the fourth church split in 47 years. Where I came in and people didn't like me and I didn't even know why. I'm new. How can you hate the new guy? <laughs> and I was scared. I was scared of what it meant for my family because my children were being bullied at school because their dad was the pastor of country bible church and we had people who we we smiled at everybody and, and we had people who would encounter us and literally walk away because they knew who i was i didn't know who they were but i was scared and if i'm being honest there are still things that frighten me about doing life in ministry But a little less because I've seen God work time and time and time and time again. And the cool thing is that God's not afraid of my fear. He doesn't get angry at my faulty faith. He steps in and he speaks to me in the moment of fear. And he says, my child, I need you to do the next
0: right thing. Exactly. You know, and what casts out fear? Perfect love. Exactly. And who's the source of perfect love? Jesus. Yeah. So this morning, you know... Our challenge to you is pretty simple. Um, I'd like to speak specifically to those of you who've been in the faith for a while and, and simply challenge you that you were not born for fear. You were not born for an identity substandard to what God has called you to be. This morning, you have the opportunity to take the next right step and simply receive. Amen. That which God created you to be. Yeah. Right? Amen. In a moment we're going to go to prayer. I would encourage you to do that very thing. And if you want to talk about ramifications, that's why we're here. Amen. As Pastor Steve, I wasn't going to do that, I was pointing to you, but that works too. Bring it in.